Please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 19. As Pastor Kyle mentioned, we are working our way through Genesis, and, uh, and this chapter, this chapter, we're going to read it together, and we're going to study together Genesis chapter 19 this morning. In verse 1 says, the two angels, those were the two angels that came with that physical manifestation of God to Abraham earlier, now it's just the two angels, came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. and You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. <clears throat> the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. 
And then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Father, we have read your word, God. You have given us your word. You've preserved it through centuries. Lord, you have allowed us to translate it into our own language so that we can read, we can hear, we can understand. And God, we understand that there is a lot of darkness here. There is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of sin. God, we pray that you would, as clearly as we see it here, point out sin in our lives. And Father, that we would detest the sin in our own lives even more than what we feel about the sin and and think about the sin that we see here. God, we pray that you would use this time to grow us, to change us, and to glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I, I tried to think about it this week, and I don't know of a more jarring chapter in Scripture, a more rattling chapter than this one. And, and it starts out safely enough, uh, but then it so quickly just descends into depraved perversion, just a bewildering display of corruption. And then it takes a minute to pan out for a little bit, and, and it looks at Abraham and miles away watching the smoke rise, and then zooms back into Lot, what remains of his family, and they just continue the, the deviant degeneracy of the culture that had just been destroyed by God's judgment, and it just, it, it's a jarring, rattling kind of chapter. And really, honestly, part of me wanted to kind of just rush through this chapter. Um, I wanted to skip so much of this, but to be faithful to the Word of God, God has this in His Word. Uh, He does not want us to skip anything in His Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. We we cannot skip and we can't just rush through this because Sodom and Gomorrah become emblematic of sin and depravity and God's judgment for the rest of Scripture. It, It shows up through the rest of Scripture. This is a pivotal chapter. And so what, what we're going to do is study this together, but we're not going to become graphic in it. Okay, we're, we need to be very careful because Ephesians 5 teaches us that we are children of light, and the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's what Scripture teaches us, okay? So we're going to spend time trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5 continues to teach us, rather than taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness, But then we get a line drawn. He he draws a line for us. And he says, rather expose them. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. But don't get all caught up in him. His next words are, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So there's a line there. We've got to expose the works of darkness, but we can't dwell in them. We can't just get all graphically, shamefully dwelling on them, speaking about every little part. And there's an apt illustration in our culture happening right now about the importance of exposing the works of darkness without getting graphic. It's in the news recently. And we need to speak plainly and clearly about sin and its effects. We need to be faithful to do that, even when our culture says, please don't, please leave that stuff aside. You've heard about monkeypox in the news. Monkeypox, you've heard it's here. You've heard that it's spreading. Uh, You've heard that we're not very well prepared to stop it or to treat it. It's a really, uh, it's a terribly painful, uh, just uh, disfiguring kind of illness. It's It's a terrible Uh, virus that nobody wants to contract, and and we've heard about that in the news, but what we don't hear much about it and what's important for us to understand is the transmission of this particular illness, this virus. And the reason that we're not hearing about the transmission, as spelled out in in a lot of different articles, is that there would become a stigma attached to how it's spread most of the time. The facts of transmission. A stigma means a shame or a disgrace, right? But in the case of an infectious disease like this, we need to know the truth about how it spreads. And according to the New England Journal of Medicine, 
An estimated 95% of the cases in the current outbreak are due to male-to-male physical contact, prolonged physical intimacy. So it is highly unlikely that you will contract this virus if you are not engaged in that type of activity. Now, health professionals and media are being actively encouraged, don't share that part of it because there's a stigma that will come along. This is not a conspiracy theory. We're not, you know, throwing stones and saying, ooh, look at this. This is just what's happening. They're being encouraged through articles, through, through uh, communication. Don't attach that stigma to this disease. So our culture would rather us not talk about that, but we need to understand the truth and speak the truth plainly. At least, at least to this point, this virus isn't spreading very much through anything other than homosexual acts. But everybody's being encouraged not to tell people. The world does not want to be forced with facing the immorality of those acts, the sinfulness of sexual perversion and the consequences that come with it. Now think back a couple years ago when COVID came out and we were told what to do. We were told it transmits through the air, so put masks on. We were told it transmits through surfaces, so sanitize the surfaces. And, and we were, there was a lot of communication about how it's transmitted. But with monkeypox, the main method of transmission, at least to this point, is being withheld. And it's not because it's unknown, but because it it might just draw unwanted attention to what the Bible calls sin. And so we need to acknowledge and speak the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, but we don't need to get into the details about what that looks like, right? Now, we also need to acknowledge that anything outside of marriage, the marriage of one man and a biological man and one biological woman, anything outside of that is also what the Bible calls sin. And it also carries consequences. It's not just monkeypox or HIV AIDS that can happen with contact like this. There's, there's a whole list of sexually transmitted infections. And there, again, is another way that these, these things are, are being avoided because it, they used to be called venereal diseases. And then they were called sexually transmitted diseases. And now they're called infections because of the stigma that becomes attached to calling out sin. But we need to expose the works of darkness, and we need to face the truth. Sin comes with consequences. And and we know that the ultimate consequence for sin, according to the Scriptures, is death. But there are also intermediate consequences that come along with that. In fact, according to the CDC, one out of every five Americans currently has an STI an infection that is sexually transmitted. And every year, almost half of those cases happen in people under 25 years old. So we need to be fair and truthful about calling out sexual immorality, intimate physical contact outside of marriage, because any of that is sinful before God. But all of that is just to say that specific acts are not going to be dwelled on, but we still need to call out. We still need to be honest and talk about what's here in this passage. We can't shy away with what, from what the Bible teaches. And there's sin here, not just those kinds of sins. There's plenty of sin. We've got a lot to learn from this chapter. And as I began reading chapter 19, I was just struck by the dizzying speed of the descent into the grotesqueness of sin in all of its sinful glory. The two angels that met with Abram, again, we find out they come to Sodom and and Lot is sitting in the gate in the evening. And the surrounding area of the gate of the city was where leaders met. It's where the judges met. It's where business happened, trading. and, And so Lot is there in the gate where leaders would sit. He's not doing business there. He's, he's in a position, a posture of leadership and judgment, and he's there late into the day. The angels apparently come not looking unhealthy, looking not like stick figures, not probably overweight. They, they come, Lot recognizes them as looking probably pretty important, and he responds similarly to how Abraham did. He, he greeted them with an appropriate greeting. He bowed to them. He welcomed them. And guessing at their, at their importance, and you know, they're, they're probably not from around here, <laughs> he bowed and he invited them into his house. Now, as we read, their, their plan was to stay in the town square, but Lot pressed them. He, he pressured them. He said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to insist. <laughs> you need to stay at my house tonight. 
and in many ways, the hospitality was expected, but again, Lot goes above and beyond like Abraham did. He makes a feast for them, but because it's late, he doesn't have time for the bread to rise, so he makes unleavened bread, but they're trying to eat before it gets dark, so they ate. Now, the reason that we just rehashed that is because tragically, that is the only time in the rest of the chapter that we're going to see Lot showing any kind of fruit of faith in his life any kind of righteousness as a believer. But we need to be clear that the Bible does call Lot a believer. And, and hopefully, as, as, we, as we look at this, this will be encouraging to us. 2 Peter 2 is where we find out that Lot was a believer. You can turn there, but you don't need to. In 2 Peter 2, Peter's making the point that destruction is coming on the wicked. Those who are wicked will be judged, false teachers included, and he uses three examples. The first one was angels when they had the one chance they had to either follow Lucifer or God, and those who followed Lucifer were judged. The second example was God's judgment on the world in the days of Noah. All of the world, all of the wicked was judged except for eight people because God not only judges the wicked, he saves the righteous. And then the third example that Peter uses is here, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed for their wickedness, and yet again, God's saving the righteous. And the contrast is clear. God judged the wicked, but he saved the righteous. And here's what Peter says about Lot. He says, God spared righteous Lot. And he was greatly distressed, Peter says, by the sensual conduct of the wicked, not just in the event that we're looking at. Peter says, that righteous man lived among them day after day, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So three times, Peter calls him righteous, and that he grieved over their sin. So, God's declared assessment of, of Lot is that he's righteous. He's, he's a believer. He's, he's saved. But again, these verses are the only time we see evidence of that. He was faithful in hospitality, but his mind and his heart will be divided for the rest of this chapter. We're, we're not sure what he's doing, why he's, what he's doing, the things that he's doing. And, and, and that's the big picture that we need to understand from studying this chapter, that God will judge the wicked, but he will save the righteous. But there's something amazing in Lot being called righteous. As we look at the chapter and all the failings that we see from him, God calls him righteous. He saves him from his judgment. And there's a small picture that we're going to need to grasp. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Uh, the believer and, and how he stumbles and how he, how he messes up and he, how he falls, but God still saves him. But the big picture in your notes at the top there is that God will judge the wicked, but he will save the righteous. And this is the big picture that we need to make sure that we study and that we understand first today because even we like to forget this part of the message. The world doesn't want us to talk about this, and sometimes we often don't, that God will judge the wicked. Psalm 7 says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation or anger every day. It says, if a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Because God is ready to punish the wicked in his righteous anger. But he withholds it. He's patient. Until the last possible second for any person, for his judgment to come upon them, he's as he waits for them to repent. Now, as we saw last week also, God withholds judgment on an area and, and the world because of the sake of the righteous who are in it. Abraham prayed for God to do that. He said he would. And, and he said that he would protect that area of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole valley of tens of thousands of people for the sake of only ten. God would withhold that judgment. So even in this difficult message of God's judgment, there is hope brought about by the presence of God's people as we keep the way of God, righteousness, justice, teaching others, interceding for those around us. But a lot of times the question that we have, the, the question that we hear from others is, well, if things are so bad, then why doesn't God just judge why doesn't he just judge and, and prove that he's real and show us what he's all about and show us that he's just? And we understand that he will, but he hasn't yet, partly for the sake of his people, partly for the sake of waiting for all who will repent. You remember that parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13? There was a, a man who planted 
seed in a field. And his enemy came and sowed seed for weeds in that field. And the workers came to the planter, the, the farmer, and said, is it, is it time to judge? Is it time to rip up those weeds? And the parable was about the world and the time for judgment. God says, no, I'm not finished with the righteous on the earth yet. Leave everything the way it is, the righteous with the wicked, all mingled up together, because if you rip out the wicked, you might harm the righteous also. They need to remain. The wicked will be gathered up, Jesus said, and thrown into the fiery furnace, but the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But that day is partly delayed for the sake of God's people. By the way, that means that God wants us to be here right now, right? Otherwise, he'd come and judge. Now, that will happen one day. Things will not always continue as they have. The Bible makes clear in Hebrews 9 that it's appointed for mankind to die once, and then comes the judgment. But that's why Christ, after he died, will come back. He will return a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so that's the promise. That's the, the truth is that there will be judgment for the wicked, but there will be salvation for the righteous. And, and there is that judgment coming. It's described in some places. But the illustration, the picture of what it will look like is clear in Genesis 19. See, what happened here is that, that this is the physical judgment, but it's, it's a really appropriate picture of what the judgment will look like to come at the end that's eternal. In these 38 verses, only two of them describe the actual judgment on the area, but it was a complete and it was a just judgment, yet the righteous were preserved. And again, we may not like to think about that part. We, we, we may hear from people around the world, oh, you Christians just go in hellfire and brimstone all the time. <laughs> you know, we don't want to hear about all of that, but we need to hear about what God did. We need to not celebrate this judgment we need to recognize it. And more than recognize, we'll get to in just a second. Because some people have tried to explain this by saying, well, this was a natural occurrence. It was just a meteor that came down and it ignited the gases around, or, or it was an earthquake, it split open and it released some gases, some lightning struck and blew the whole thing up. And it was a, just a, you know, it was a freak accident. But verse 24 is pretty clear that the Lord did this from heaven. Whatever he used, however he did it, it was something that God did. He did not allow it. He caused it. He brought it upon them. Then it wasn't unreasonable. It wasn't mean. It wasn't capricious. It wasn't terrible. In, in God's eyes, it was just. It was righteous. But from a human standpoint, it was terrible. Now, the wicked are judged and the righteous are preserved. And, and we've said that before. But we need to think about another statement from Jesus. In, in Matthew 7, He tells us that we need to enter by the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And as we read Genesis chapter 19 here and we see tens of thousands of people in these valleys, only it was less than 10 that were saved. In fact, the angel's invitation was only to six, Lot, his wife, their two daughters, and their two fiancés, but it was only four who were actually taken out of the area, and of the four, only only three made it all the way out, so out of tens of thousands, only three were saved. Now, that's a really disturbing picture of the many versus the few. So not only, brothers and sisters, do we need to recognize that God's judgment is is coming, we need to be praying, we need to be hoping, we need to be working with all of the strength that God gives us to use any of our resources to make sure that those kinds of numbers aren't true where we are or in any area that God has given for us to reach, that three out of tens of thousands would be saved. Sodom and Gomorrah for the rest of the scriptures, become a picture of the depths of moral decay and wickedness and outright wickedness. I mean, just pride in their their sin, stubbornness and celebrating it, and a picture of the coming judgment of God, just a complete, total, horrific picture of that from a human standpoint. And the hope that we have is that the righteous will be saved. But how many righteous will there be? We have a responsibility, a part to play in answering that question. 
as God works through us. It, we know, we understand that that's God's work. And he uses means, and that means us. We're not going to go through all the verses in the Bible that use Sodom and Gomorrah as, as an example, but there's one specific area that we need to look at. It's from Jesus in Luke 17. And Jesus says there, he, he's comparing the unexpected suddenness. He's, he's talking about the totality of destruction brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah when the final judgment comes. And it happened in Noah's time, but Jesus says in verse 28 of Luke 17, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So again, God is going to judge one day, but it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be complete and total. And all people will then be brought before the just, the righteous judge. And in Jesus' words, many will be found guilty, and a few will be called sons of God, welcomed into his glory. But it will happen when people don't expect it, and it will be total and complete and final. What happened here was physical, but that will be spiritual and eternal. So get a hold of this, believer. Grab on to this reality. Don't let it pass out of your mind so easily, even as uncomfortable as it is. Allow this to penetrate your mind and heart so much that you don't worry about what somebody might call you if you talk to them about judgment is coming because of our sin. You need to repent. You need to believe. This is Jesus who will save us from that judgment. We need to be honest. We need to tell people we have this urgent message. Bring this message to people. Don't worry about sounding intelligent or sounding articulate or, or whatever. I remember one time when one of our kids, when they were younger, was in the street and a car was coming and I said, and I ran out in the street and I just picked him up and I got him out of the street. I wasn't worried about what I was sounding like. I just needed to get the message across. You need to get out of the street. We need to get the message out there. Brothers and sisters, we need to be faithful to the message, and we need to be faithful with the message. Let's get the message out. The only way that anyone can be righteous, the only way that anyone can join the righteous that God will save is by faith, through faith by God's grace. Remember Genesis fifteen six. That was how Abraham was counted righteous. It wasn't because of anything great that Abraham had done. It was because of his faith in God that God used to save him. And that's the only way for us to be saved, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior. Now, what brought about this judgment? This judgment was, was a complete, a total, a sudden destruction of judgment. So what brought this about? And, and it's an important question because it's the same thing that will bring about his final judgment that is to come, as we've talked about. And, and we know it's sin. Okay, that's the, the Sunday school answer, right? We know that that's the answer. It was sin. But what specifically about sin brought this judgment? Well, first, in your notes, there are three parts to this answer. In verse 4, we see the pandemic of sin. The pandemic of sin brought this judgment about. Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, that's a pandemic, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, that spreads everywhere. That has gone throughout every single person. Now, we understand as we read the scriptures, we interpret them literally, but within a literal interpretation, there is such a thing as figures of speech. There is simile. There is metaphor. There's even hyperbole. And hyperbole is an, an, an intentional exaggeration, okay? Now, usually the context makes it clear when that's being used. The, the context doesn't seem to be clear that, that this is hyperbole. He seems to go to great lengths here to say both young and old, all the people, to the last man. And so if this is literal, the entire city has surrounded Lot's house because they're all infected with this sin, this kind of level of, of sin that has overwhelmed their actions and they've surrounded the house. If it's not literal, you can imagine an enormous crowd just surrounding. Nobody can even move. They're trying to get into the house. So, but that's what sin does. 
it gets in and it, and it spreads and it permeates, it infects, it, it, it pervades culture, but it doesn't stop there because it wants to get into your own soul. Like water into a colander, it's trying to get in. It spreads, it multiplies, it expands. Somebody compared it to a ship in water. We believers are in the world like ships in water. And again, that's where God has us. That's where, that's where he wants us right now or we'd be with him. In, in some way or shape or form, he would call us home if he was ready. But for now, we're to be here. And so the ship in the water is a good thing. That's where God has us. But when the water starts to get into the ship, well, now you've got a problem. Now we've got danger. Because the water of the world is always trying to get in. If there's even so much as a simple weakness, the water will find a way to get in. The world will find a way to get in us. And that can be a helpful illustration, except that the way that we all started was at the bottom. <laughs> we already started with all of the water in us, so that we were at the bottom. Romans 5:12 says that sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, all of us have sinned. Sin's already in our ship. We start as a sunken ship, and all it does is continue to spread and grow worse and get a stronger hold. It's only when we repent of our sins, when we believe in Jesus Christ, that he raises us up out of the water, cleanses us from all of the water within us, and brings us to the top. But then we can still let the water in. We can still make ways for the world to get within us and to to overtake us, not so that we sink again, because Jesus will always keep us. But we can let the water in, and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week more. But because, because sin spreads so much, we all think we're okay. Well, you know, look, that, these people sin, that person sins. I, you know, I mean, I'm not perfect, but nobody is, so it's okay, right? We, we get that idea. It takes not one another to show us what holiness looks like, what God's standard, what his law looks like, what holiness is. It takes the word of God. In Romans 7, we learn that sin was producing death in me through God's law, through what's good. Because God's law was showing me what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, it takes the word of God coming to our souls, through our ears, through our eyes, to come into our minds and show us what's in our hearts, that there's sin there. We don't even know it's there until the word of God comes. And it's the light of his word that reveals it. And especially when we weren't looking, we weren't noticing that it was coming in. But that's what sin is. That's how bad it is. It just spreads. It, it, it permeates. It pervades everything. So that's, that's the first part of what brought this judgment, the pandemic of sin. Secondly, verse 5, the perversion of sin. The perversion of sin. Verse 5 says, bring them out here so that we may know them. Now this is the carnal, sexual, immoral meaning of know knowing them. It was the deviant corruption of God's plan for a man and a woman to come together in marriage. Their desires were homosexual, their desires were selfish, and their desires were violent. And and the root of this tree was their lust, their yearning after their own desires. Now, some have said that the main sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not being hospitable. Like, that was the main idea. When the angels came, Lot was hospitable, but the rest of them just weren't. And that was their main sin. Now, we need to understand that that was part of their sin. Ezekiel 16, 49 said that Sodom had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So, yes, it was part of their sin that they were not hospitable. That they were not caring for other people with all of the things that they had. But it had pervaded their lives so much that it, it had gotten into the hospitality part of them that was supposed to be just standard and common among people in the area, so that it was just removing even a basic level of concern for other people. That wasn't their main sin. It's on full display here, but the distinctive sin here it was, was this desire to know these men, and that's what Jude 7 says. It makes it remarkably clear that this was the distinctive sin, this perversion. 
There's no indication that they knew that they were angels, but in all of their sinfulness, they didn't care who they were. They wanted what they wanted. Sin twists, it perverts. It takes good things and it makes them just twisted into something else, something that, that sin is okay with. And it, it goes beyond just these obvious ones that we're talking about. I mean, you know, you look at a, a man and a woman in marriage and, and the man begins to, to miss the respect that he's supposed to get from his wife. So he, he berates her and, and he, he tells her, you're supposed to respect me and, and you're supposed to whatever. He, and he, he goes to great lengths to get what was supposed to be good and he twists it, he perverts it into something bad. And we do that in, in all of God's goodness that he's given us. I mean, that, that's what sin does. It comes in and it perverts, it twists, it, it, it breaks, it messes up. It was that level of perversion that was reached where God said, all right, that's enough. <laughs> Judgment needs to come. And again, that will happen one day for the world where God says that's enough. But it wasn't just the pandemic and it wasn't just the perversion of sin. Number three, finally, it was the persistence of sin. The persistence of it. I mean, what we see here is uncontrollable lewdness built from unmet desire, right? And, and we talked about how your desire can derail your faith. We talked about how, you know, when you have faith, you can have desires that come in and they can kind of get you off track and then we've got to get back on. But imagine if you didn't have faith to derail to begin with. If you didn't have anything pushing against those desires, imagine how quickly, how far you would go in sin with no faith to fight it. Lot goes out and he pleads with them. He says, I beg you, don't do this. Don't be so wicked. He tries to stand in the way and then they threaten to punish him. And, and he offers other sin even. He says, look, you want this sin, but please don't do that. Just do this sin. <laughs> Try this other sin. And they won't be distracted in their singularity of purpose. I want what I want. I'm going to get it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. Right? And, and it's, it's stunning. Even after being struck with blindness, it says they wore themselves out groping for the door. They were so persistent in their sin. Even when they couldn't see anymore, they said, I don't care. I still want this. And I'm still going to do what it takes to get it. That's the persistence of sin. You remember when God counseled Cain in, in chapter 4? He said, sin is crouching at the door. It's right there. It wants to get in. It, it's right at your door. Its desire is for you. It wants to take you over. It wants to control you. Sin wants to get inside of you. But God said, you must rule over it. First Peter 5 tells us that we need to be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's right there. He's looking. He's searching. He's watching. So we need to be watchful and resist him firm in our faith. Resisting the persistence of sin. Now, Again, as we've said, this is the grotesqueness of sin on full display in pan pandemic perverse persistence. And, and we might shake our head at this and say, oh, wag our finger. I can't understand how it got that bad there. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine what, what happened there. And in a sense, by God's restraining grace, we can say that, praise God, that we haven't seen that level at least around us or within us. But yet, we're quite familiar with sin in our own lives. Sin is still sin. And we follow these same patterns, and sin follows the same patterns of passions and lusts and pursuing them and trying to get to them just like they did. We package them up differently. We, we put bows and ribbons. We excuse them. We pretty them up. We explain it away. But all of us are sinners. No one does good. No, not one of us is perfect. Not one of us is able to say that we've done something that pleased God in our own selves, in our own flesh. And this is what it really looks like, even when we try to make friends with it and be okay with it or excuse it or blame other people for it. This is what it looks like. We need to see sin as this bad because God sees sin as this bad. Talking about his own people, God talking about his own people in Israel in Isaiah 3, he said his judgment's coming against Jerusalem because their speech and their deeds were against the Lord. They were defying his glorious presence. He said they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. 
compared his own people to Sodom and Gomorrah. Even among his own prophets in Jeremiah 23, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, God says, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. So we've got to see sin as sin, the way God sees it, because he sees it that way. This is the reality. And we can see some of the same things happening around us in our culture, this sin that's, that's constantly trying to sneak in, that's constantly trying to, to spread out, and that's trying to weed its way in. Brothers and sisters, it's not getting better around us. But this is what makes God's grace so amazing. This is why we sing about his amazing grace and his amazing mercy, his love for us, because he removes our guilt for our sin and he punished Jesus for it. Because as we deserve this kind of judgment, he took that away from us and gave it to Jesus, his son, who paid for it on the cross. And he suffered, he was humiliated, and he died so that he would forgive us of our sin. This sin. Titus 3 says it well, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, praise God for that word, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works but done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, richly, he said, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've not earned anything by our goodness, but Jesus did. And he gives us his goodness by his grace through faith. I love the song that Matt Boswell wrote, To the Cross I Cling. It explains so well this. He says, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in your sight. I still sin. I still mess up. The best I have to offer are these filthy rags, and yet you love me. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in you plead my acceptance, he writes. I am guilty but pardoned. By grace I've been set free. I am ransomed through the blood you shed for me. I was dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. I am reconciled through mercy to the cross I cling. It's such a beautiful song and beautiful truth that just despite the pandemic of sin, despite the perverse persistence of sin, always trying to get in, always being there and, and trying to kill it and trying to push it out, Jesus gives us the victory when we repent and believe in him. But the people around us, brothers and sisters, are so deceived by sin, they don't even know it's, that it's there. They don't even know that it's in them. And it's our job to tell them. As sin takes over more of our culture and our culture celebrates sin and, and demands that we celebrate it with them and, and we begin to see more overt and obvious forms of it, our job is to hold firm, to stand fast in the gospel and to still share it and live it and speak it even when they say, stop. Jesus said they're going to go along with their daily lives. They're just going to keep living the way that they've lived buying and selling and waking and walking and all of the things that they do until the day of the Lord comes. But he's commanded us to reach out to them. We're to be like Jonah, going out into this wicked place, proclaiming God's judgment, but then his mercy as they repent, as we repent. Tell them this bad news of sin. Tell them the bad news of judgment, but then tell them the good news of Jesus who washes away our sin and its consequences. When the end comes, the righteous will be saved, but the wicked will be judged. So again, be faithful to the message, but be faithful with the message. Now there's another question that we hear a lot, and we, I wanted to address this question based on that truth, that God's going to judge, but he's going to save the righteous. If Sodom and Gomorrah were this bad, and it brought God's judgment on them, how bad does it have to be here for God to do the same thing that he did in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
At what point will we be that bad to deserve that level of punishment? Now, part of the answer to that question is what we've just been talking about. Before the holy God, that's what we're all deserving. That level of punishment, that level of judgment is what we've all deserved. It's only his patient mercy and grace that doesn't give us that every day. But brace yourselves for this. (laughs) Because some people in the scriptures are called worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. We've already referenced some verses where God has compared his own people but other peop- to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, but other people have been called worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew 11, Jesus points to certain Jewish cities that remain unrepentant in their refusal to believe in Jesus. And he had demonstrated his power. He'd done miracles. He had taught. He'd given the word of God. But they were rejecting the word of God. They rejected the gospel. And he compared Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon and and said those cities would have repented. But in another city, his headquarters for his own ministry, Capernaum, he compared Capernaum to Sodom. He said, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would still be here because they would have repented. They would have believed. But since you refuse to believe in hard-heartedness, you will be brought down to Hades and it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for you than for Sodom. They were worse than Sodom. Now, what does that tell us? Well, first, it tells us that all sin will be brought to account before God, and and sin will be judged, and yet all sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ when we believe in Him, if we will repent. But second, no sin will be forgiven if that one foundational underlying sin remains a rejection of Jesus Christ. On top of the punishment and the judgment that you would have for your sins, the worst punishment will come for rejecting Jesus in your time on this earth. Not, not, it doesn't take persecuting him. It doesn't take making martyr, martyrs out of his people. Just saying no to his gospel is worse judgment than what came upon Sodom or what will happen for Sodom at the end. The, the, the gross sins... All of the sins, the gross ones, the, the, what we think of as less gross, all of those will be judged. But the hard-hearted rejection, the stubborn refusal to repent and to believe will be judged even more strictly. They will be even more deserving of punishment. So we in our culture are not better or more righteous than Sodom or Gomorrah. And that's why God hasn't rained down sulfur and fire. That, that's not what the lesson here is. What would have kept the whole place from being destroyed, God said to Abraham when he was interceding for them. Just ten righteous people. God would have, would have withheld judgment. As we see in our country, in our culture, we see it descending down deeper into the depths of depravity. The hope for all of us is only ever Jesus, but the prevention of total destruction is obedience and making disciples of Jesus. God hasn't judged us because we're better than Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason that he's withheld, apparently, our lesson from here is that he's withheld it because of the sake of the righteous who are here, partly. So that means that the answer to our degrading and and degenerate culture is not in reform. It's not in wins in the courts, though we praise God for those virtuous laws in the land. It's not behavior modification. It's not trying to make people more moral or conservative. The solution is and only ever has been and only ever will be the gospel. Bringing the gospel that is in your notes, the only solution for the degeneracy of our culture is the gospel. Make disciples and that brings about more righteous people in the land. And, and God is withholding judgment partly to allow people to repent, to give them time to repent. It's partly because there are people in the land who have repented. And it's partly because he's giving us time to obey the command to share that gospel. If we want to see the preservation of freedom and of justice, of, of all that we appreciate about where we live... The way to save it is not by stomping around about our rights and about what God says in, in, in this place or that place or, or what the Constitution says. Uh, it's about spreading the gospel. It's spreading the gospel. Now, this is not a guarantee God could still have our culture in his plans for it, for it to be done away with. 
But we have a responsibility to make disciples. And when we don't obey that, we do expose the people around us to God's judgment. His immediate judgment on top of the coming judgment at the end. But the hope that we have and the hope that anybody around us has is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we are strong enough, bold enough, courageous enough in our Savior because of what he's done in us and what he continues to do in us, we share that message. We live that message. We speak that message. We're not afraid to share that message. Again, as we study, Lord willing, next week, we're going to look and see a lot of mess-ups from Lot, a lot of, a lot of slip-ups. <laughs> uh, but he's righteous because of his faith in God. And brothers and sisters, we're, we're going to mess up. We're not going to do it right. We're not going to be perfect in any, in any way, shape, or form on this earth until God brings us home. But we're not called to, to make sure that we're working toward perfection. He says you need to be perfect as God, your Father in heaven, is perfect. But he does that in us. And he brings that about in us. And so we need to be faithful. Our application is that we need to make sure that if we have never come to the knowledge of who Jesus is and we've never believed in him or repented, that's first, repent and believe. In your application, that blank is believe. If you're not sure what that means, you're not sure who that is, we want to invite you to come forward as we sing that last song. We want you to come out of the seats and come down the aisles and come up here to this place where we can talk to you more about the grace, the goodness, the mercy of our Savior who will save you from your sins. Next, when you have repented, you have believed, then you need to be making disciples. Make disciples. That's what we need to be about. That's the great commission. It's not just a nice thing. It's not a great idea. It's not how we make sure that we continue to have people and and money coming in. (laughs) This is his command for us to obey in love because we really believe it. Because we really believe that his judgment is coming. If we really believed the car was coming down the road, we wouldn't just try to say, well, I hope you figure it out. Get the kid and snatch him out, and that's our job. Make disciples, and then finally intercede for the lost. Pray for them. Pray for the people around you that don't know Jesus, who are sitting here now, who live around you at your house, your neighbors, the people that you work around. Pray for them. Again, if you don't know this Jesus, if this is the first time you've heard this and you've, you've always thought, you know, this is just hellfire brimstone, this is just angry Christians, this is just stuff that we shouldn't even be talking about today, this is the truth of the word of God. It will come one day. Don't wait. The, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that it is truth. Thank you, God, that you've told us ahead of time that judgment is coming so that we can prepare And God, in so many ways, we've tried to prepare and we've fallen short and we've messed up. And God, we can't prepare on our own. All we can do is cry out to you for mercy and you give it, God, in your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for that gospel, that good news. Father, I pray that we who have believed it would continue to believe and continue to live. And Lord, that we would share that message. God, give us a boldness. Give us the courage. Give us the words to say. Lord, give us opportunities and and make us faithful, Lord, in those opportunities. Father, thank you that we have hope that we will be saved from your judgment. Oh God, there's nothing better than knowing that we don't have to face your wrath and the punishment of sin. God, thank you for Jesus enduring that, taking that from us. God, I pray that that would become more real to us every day, all day. God, that we would share that in love. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that that we would not be discouraged but encouraged by this truth that you save your people. Father, use us to bring others to Jesus so that they can be saved also. In his name we pray and for his glory and praise and honor. Amen.